This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey Geekscapers, welcome to a brand new Geekscape. Yes, I know, I just gave you guys a Geekscape a few days ago where we talked to Andrew Rader uh, from SpaceX about the colonization of Mars and the rest of our universe, and that was a pretty cool space science-centered uh, episode. If you guys are big space cadets, go back and listen to it. Um, but you know, you know Geekscape, I mean, if you've been listening to Geekscape before, you know we talk a lot of movies, video games, comic books, co- uh, writing, and, uh, and all that pop culture stuff, so let's get back to that as well. And I could not wait to get back from Brazil so I could sit down with my friend Jose Molina and talk to him about, well, you, you guessed it, movies, video games, comics, TV, and all of that. He's a TV writer. He's got a long list of credits. Some of your favorite shows, actually, and we'll get into that. Uh, but I first met Jose. You just made a tactical mistake, though, by the way. Playing right, right before Right before we started recording, you said no more candy. Right. But we've got I a know. candy dish. <laughs> we got candy right here. I'm putting the candy dish over here. No, I'm keeping uh, this one. Are you really? This one peanut butter in it? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, uh, I revel in uh, fucking podcast sounds up. Do you really? Yeah. So well, open um, the window and get some more rain sound. Yeah. It's actually one of the rare occasions <laughs> of raining in, in Los Angeles. Uh, yeah, so we met, uh, we met, we just started playing a campaign, uh, D&D campaign a couple weeks ago. And I knew nothing about you. I just, well, I did. How I, dare I, you? Here's the thing. I, I, I had, I had consumed some of your products as a writer. Right. But I didn't know you personally. My friend Keith Trellins was like, if you really want to play D&D with us, we're meeting at Jose Molina's house on this day. Come out and play. And, uh, and we did. And it was fun. It was one of my first times playing Dungeons & Dragons again. Uh, since middle school, I'd started playing again through Satine Phoenix, our mutual friend Satine. Right. I'd started playing over the last couple of years, just once or twice a year as part of her uh, different D&D events. But um, ultimately, as part of a regular game with a consistent campaign, it's been middle school. Yeah. And here I am. Yeah, 20 man. plus years later. I, I started playing. Really. It's interesting to talk about D&D and writing with me because uh, D&D is how I started writing. Really? Like I, 
I was 10 years old, and I'm from originally from Puerto Rico, and I was visiting family in St. Louis. Uh-huh. And we were at a Toys R Us. And how old were you? I was 10. Okay. Uh, and my grandmom and I are walking through a Toys R Us, and she's like, pick something, and I'll buy it for you. And I'm walking around, I'm like, oh, okay, weird toys, toys, toys. I don't really want any of this. And I see... And you didn't want the action figures or the J.J.'s or any of that stuff? Not, because I had, you know, like my sure. Star Wars shit that, that I'd gotten from my mom. And this was just like, bonus. Right. Pick a thing. Because right. I was out of my element. My, my, mom, my grandmom knew that I was a little homesick, so she wanted to give me a little treat. And so I'm walking down the Nile, and I see this thing that has a dragon and a guy fighting a dragon with a sword. And I was like, ooh, what's this? I have no idea what it is, but it looks cool. And right. it was the red box. Sure. So I bought the red box set, and I started going through it. I'm like, what the fuck is this? It's I can, a lot of rules. I can swear, right? a lot of writing. And... I can swear as much as I want, right? Yeah, you can do whatever you okay. want. It's the internet. Uh, we're, we're recording this in the nude. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you might hear a little scrotal slap on my chair. <laughs> um, but uh, so, yeah. So then I took the, the red box back with me to Puerto Rico, and I was like, uh, I read the whole thing, and I was like, this sounds amazing. And I got to rally all my friends to, to figure out how to play. And I got a group, you know, the group of uh, Stranger Things kids that we right. were who rode our bikes everywhere. We started playing D&D and played it through most of, like, uh, uh, middle school and even into junior high. Uh, and then I went away from it for a while, and I got to college, and I had a really hard time getting into like a group of people in college like there was no niche for sort of a weird nerdy geek like me uh and it was junior year that i finally i i saw a flyer for the D club mm-hmm. at, at in in my school and i picked it out and i joined a, a group um, and, and this is still in Puerto Rico. No, no, no. no this this is, is in school. I went to, okay. to Yale. I went okay. to college in Yale. Okay. So this was, yeah, this was there. Uh, so I'm miles away from anybody. And now I'm really, college, Connecticut. Yeah. So I'm like 1920, sure. somewhere around there. Um, and uh, and it was my way of sort of getting into a social clique again. Right. Uh, so D and D again just sort of became a big part of my world, and I started enjoying my social experience in college, and that sort of opened my Horizons, I made a bunch of friends, then I made friends through them, and it was a huge life changer for me. So that was the last time I played up until about, I don't know, I want to say like five, six years ago, something like that, there was an open chair uh, in uh, Keith's game. Okay. Uh, And Keith, uh, Javi, my friend Javi Grillo Markswatch. Who's been on the show. Who's been on the show, who I do a podcast with, uh, Children of Tendu, who I've known for 20 years. He'd been playing with Keith. And uh, suddenly there was an opening, and I joined that, and it was like coming home again, man. Yeah. It was like, like I I remember coming home after that first night, and just having a crazy endorphin rush, like I want to go again. You're back in college. Yeah, like you know, like uh, when you jump out of a plane and you're like, I can I've take never, over you the world. Out of a plane? No, but I want to. Do you really? Yeah. Yeah, that's not on my list. No. <laughs> no, because. Um... I don't know. Gravity does weird things to people when they fall from that high. <laughs> I want to do that. The ground, and I want to bungee does jump. Even worse things. Yeah. I want to bungee. I want to do so, some things. Uh, I want to ultimately like uh, like uh, uh, cage dive with sharks. I want to do okay. that. Okay. Uh, uh, and I'm like, not. I'm not really like the daredevil that I'm making myself out sure. to be. But there are certain things on the bucket list. 
Right. And anyway, th- this D and D game made me feel like like just my blood was pumping. I was and I alive was just, again. As it was avatar. awesome. That was awesome. I'm alive again as someone else. Yeah. <laughs> I'm alive again as someone else on paper in a fictitious environment. Um, uh, but I, I hear what you're saying, and it's been awesome playing with you guys. Um, it's been imaginative. I'm sorry that I, uh, I was out of the country and missed this past week. I can only hope that it was not nearly as fun without my uh, my, my, my constant annoyance. It was. We we missed you. We missed your character. Uh, Jonathan plays a, uh, a rogue, um, and he's always sort of the scouting party ahead of right. everybody else. He gets to sneak around corners, uh, but I uh, I developed a trick that I was able to use this week. I have a familiar. Oh, because I'm, I'm a that? wizard. Yeah, but when did you get the familiar? I, I used it this week. I just cast a fine familiar spell. Okay. So I have a rat familiar, oh, and rat. I can see through his eyes. So I would just send him around corners. It's like Koto and Poto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the fucking beast beastmaster. Master. I love those guys. I so wanted a ferret when I was a kid. Did you really? Yeah. Um, but wait, wait, wait. Let me let me go okay. back to, yeah, go to, back. Go to, to to. You're eating candy. Oh my god. I, I am eating candy. Oh my god. This guy with his sound effects. Oh. <laughs> oh. Um. So uh, going way way back to to the when I was playing in Puerto you can Rico eat the candy. With, you don't have to put it with my uh, <laughs> while I'm talking. Okay. Um, with my D and D nerds, we in Puerto Rico when I was ten, eleven, twelve. We didn't have Dragon Magazine. You just couldn't get it in Puerto Rico, and there was right. no hobby shop to get modules. So the uh, the red box came with an adventure, sure. and one of my players had a guy who knew a guy who had a cousin who had a couple of modules. But we didn't have any material to play, so that's how I started writing. You started, I started making up your campaigns. Writing, yeah. I started writing adventures for my people and you know, taking little pieces from... Star Wars and Raiders and, you know, all of my favorites and kind of making a mishmash and, you know, even developing little character arcs for my players. Like, I, everybody had rolled their own characters and I created this adventure where, like, two of them discovered that they were long-lost siblings and now all of a sudden <laughs> these two players who knew each other in real life suddenly had this weird bond in the game where they Just always had each other's back. It was a telenovela, all right? There's something very Hispanic about a telenovela and you oh, yeah. integrated it into <laughs> D&D. Totally. <laughs> it's like your own little telenovela. That's funny. But, uh, you know, the, the, the relationships came with what I dubbed ancestral items. Right. Like they were digging into their past, and each of them got like a cool item because I kind of wanted to have like the. You remember the Dungeons and Dragons sure. cartoon? Sure. Um, I wanted everybody to have like their flaming bow or their invisibility cloak. Thing, or, yeah. So the result of this journey into their ancestry yielded a cool magic item for each one of them. We, we, we just, when you went to college, was it for writing? Was it for. You know, I you went to school for... thinking I was going to be a fucking lawyer. Um, because that's what my granddad wanted me to be. And again, you know, Latino culture, what granddad wants is what granddad gets. Well, well, more importantly, what what grandma wants. Yeah. (laughs) Whoever has the chancla, (laughs) whoever they want. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The flying frisbee of death. So, you know, I I got there, and so I started as a poli-sci major, and quickly I changed to, uh, I saw Dead Poet Society. Sure. And that changed my life. And I was like, I do not want to live this life of quiet desperation. So I switched my major to English, knowing that I could do a bunch of different things with that degree that I could, you know, I could teach if yeah. I wanted to do that. I could go to law school if I ultimately decided to do that, but I knew I wanted to write. And my goal was to be the Puerto Rican Stephen King. Like, that was my... That was it. That was my that was stated goal. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so I started writing a bunch of short stories, and that was my thing. In the vein of, like, horror or... Mostly horror, okay. yeah. 
mostly really shitty horror. <laughs> What's the worst one you can remember? Oh God, I wrote one. We'll put it one. down here so that in case somebody it shows up later on screen. I you, wrote you, you have, one. We have claim right here that. that so I had the writer's book. market. The writer's right. market is this big, thick book that uh, that has all the information for every publication uh, in the U.S. So like magazines and uh, anything that you it, from Playboy to. Uh, good housekeeper. Okay, so if you wanted to you try and make sell money an as, a, as an article, yeah, writing right. articles. Or, or a story. So sure. I looked at everything that had a story, and there was Cavalier Magazine was the magazine. They, what is that? One of their, they, they publish horror stories, but it's a men's magazine. So one of their mandates is that there has to be at least one graphic sex scene in the story. Okay. So I wrote this story. About this girl who is coming back from a nightclub after after a night of like trolling to get trying to get laid, and she gets to her house and there's a fucking creep at the door, and the creep puts a knife to her neck and like throws her in, and it's like this weird sort of tense home invasion story, and he he like puts the moves on her, and she's she sort of gives in because it's it's uh she's she, gonna die. she doesn't want yeah, yeah she doesn't want this fucking guy to kill her. And then as they're having this weird fucked up sex, which I had to describe to meet the criteria of Cavalier Magazine, she sinks her, her fangs into the guy's neck uh, and we learn she's a vampire. Sure. And this was all... She, wanted, she went trolling to get laid because she wanted to get a guy in a vulnerable spot. Turn him into a vampire. One landed in her lap. You would think that she wouldn't fight him so much. Well, she didn't. And that why, that's okay. why there was that sort of p- weird, tense push-pull right. in, she was in the middle of the Right, she was with him into that. Okay. Right. And uh, more, you know, I said it was a terrible story. Yeah. More, it was me toying with the reader, trying to to get them Add to expect kind of that tension. we were going in one direction. If you know, I mean, I'm sure it was a fine story, mm-hmm. but it seemed like in film school everybody had those. Stories. It was called. Check this out. It was called Lust to Dust. Yeah, that was awesome. Wait, does she get staked at the end? No, but she kills him. I know, but like... No, it was a bad story, okay. man. <laughs> she gets ashed like in the Blade movies. No. I just remember uh, people would always pitch the girl walking home alone story. And yeah. then like the guy comes out and it yeah. turns out she's the vampire. Yeah. It's like, That's what I've, this was. I've heard that one a few times. <laughs> yeah. But you actually added some sexuality to it. You, you put it in a, in a home. And, you know, a nightclub and, hey, you know... I, I was trying to make 250 bucks. That's all it was. <laughs> And I was just trying to write fast. Did it get published? No. Oh, shit. I submitted it. It didn't get published. But, right. you know, I was going through the book and sort of the, the writer's manual and really Did you then realize trying... I can't do everything with this English degree? Because <laughs> you were like, I realize I can do anything with well, an English no, degree. Well, no, because now at like, this oh. point, you know, I'm a humongous Stephen King fan. Right. And so I, I wrote papers on King and I read a bunch of King and about him. And he has a stack of rejection letters that right. he still keeps. So to me, every rejection was actually a badge of honor. Right. Um, and so Do you still have them? I, they might be in my dad's house somewhere, okay. in my parents' house. Because I told my dad, and my dad was always hugely encouraging about uh, writing, because I think he wanted to be a, a writer when he was younger. Um, and, uh, and so he had a file in his office cabinet, like in his filing cabinet where we kept them. And every time I got one, I would go and it's like, Dad, here's another one, and we'd add it. Um, so they might be there. Um, but the thing that I was really trying to do was um, finding reasons for me to write. And, you know, finding, well, this one requires sex. Well, I haven't done that. Okay, let me do that. Let me try that. See if I can do it. 
um, rather than just being in my head and and finding reasons not to write. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I never got a story published, but that's all I did through college until I uh, almost literally stumbled into a screenwriting class uh, junior year, uh-huh. and that sort of changed the course of my And what did you do that? Like, you, you got a screenwriting class, you kind of learned the format. Uh, I'm guessing like Final Draft starts up sometime around there in the mid-90s? This would have been... Am I aging you properly? Uh, I'm 45 now, right. okay. so I graduated in 93, this would have been 91. So there's not a whole lot of PC formatting programs no. for screenwriting at all? No, uh, not at all. Uh, so we it was all done in Word you with had to set tabs. The tabs, right. Yeah, it, was, it was shitty. But yeah, I I needed this. Uh, I had a hole in my calendar in my schedule where I needed one more class, and I found the screenwriting class, took it, and it, I was just a natural at it because I was such an addict of all TV and movies that, mm-hmm. whereas everybody, uh, most people in the class were either English majors. Yale doesn't have a film. Right. Uh, a fil- well, it does a, now. It has a film studies, which is not hands-on production. My friend James Ponsel went to, to, to film. I think, well, he went to a Yale undergrad, but he's the guy who started the Porn and Chicken Club. Okay. Did you hear about the Porn and Chicken Club? It no. was like 2000, 2001. A bunch of guys who would sit around and watch porn and eat chicken. Eat chicken? Uh, yeah. That doesn't sound like Yale. I went to film school with him, but I think it got written up. And then I remember while we were in Columbia, he sold the idea. Like the story of the Porn and Chicken Club to like Comedy Central, and they shot it like our second year in film school. Nice. And they gave James a bit part. James went on to, I think James just did a movie with, um, he, he did uh, The End of Tour. And okay. Before that, he did The Spectacular Now, and he just nice. did a movie with Tom Hanks and Emma Watson. Nice. So James is doing fine. Yeah, no but shit. He started at Yale doing the, the Porn and Chicken Club. <laughs> and I just remember him telling me about that and being like, uh, what? There, there is a, a film studies major, but it's all uh, film analysis. Right. Like you don't actually make films. Right. So you don't write scripts. You don't direct them. You do, don't do any of no that. So, uh, so a lot of people, I think, took this class um, who didn't know really anything. They were just taking it as a, as a writing class. And I instantly sort of uh, gravitated to the three-act structure and dialogue and visual heavy medium so that you don't need to weave the fancy prose that I think a lot of people were trying to do at Yale. Um, And so I I took that class uh, and I found out about the Television Academy screenwriting internship, which uh, Star Trek alum uh, Brandon Braga had had. Uh, taken, or had won, I should say, and that had led him to become a staff writer on Next Generation. And I was like, that's the path I want. Uh-huh. I applied to the internship, I got it. Well, uh, m- kind of miraculously, because I'd never written, I had to write a script for that, and I'd never written a complete script before. Uh, this class, in any medium, feature or TV nope, or anything. This class, uh, you had to write the first two acts of right. a movie. So that'll give you an idea plus. of... It's 80 pages at most. Yeah, so that'll right. give you an idea of how legit the the, the, the screenwriting yeah. uh, at Yale was. So yeah, I just bought a book uh, called How to Write for Television by Madeline DiMaggio. Okay. Tore through that, wrote my script, sent it how in. How long was that? How long did it take you to write a script? I had to write it in a week. Oh, shit. Um, but it... Turned out it was a half hour. No, it was an hour. It was the next. It was the next generation. Oh, so okay. 
but you're you were so versed in it that you just busted it. Out. I had the story it like fan in it, it totally was it totally yeah. was, and I was a big data nerd, so it was lore comes back and it's this whole Frankenstein story between <laughs> data and lore. It was kind of cool actually. I'm still kind of proud of that one. But it got me the internship, and the internship got me out to L.A., and it uh, allowed me to tell my parents, hey, you know, there's a legit thing that I'm going to be working on Star Trek. It's not you some lark. You the internship on Star Trek? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What season um, was that? This was the last season of Next Gen, second season of DS9. Okay. So I was actually in, uh, assigned to Deep Space Nine. Cool. Um, but I got to meet uh, Brandon Braga and Renee Echevarria, who is a friend and mentor to this day, as is Brandon, uh, and Ron Moore, and Arane Shankar, Robert Wolf, Ira Bear, Michael Piller, the late, great Michael Piller, who was uh, the guy who single-handedly changed my life. A lot of amazing people, and, you know, I was in, uh, you know, as I at least had my foot in the door, right. which is so hard to get, um, and... Uh, out of the internship, I got an agent, thanks to Brandon's help, and that, again, helped me to convince my parents that I was legit and <laughs> I could do it. You're not going to starve out here? Yeah. And, I mean, I was starving. <laughs> sure, sure. But at least I had some prospects. Um, and, yeah, that's, that's sort of my, what do you do my after origin that? story. After that, I... Uh, because again, did nothing. But like, did they promise you an episode? Did they say like, "Hey, listen, good writing, kid. We're starting this other thing." And they no, I mean, they the Voyager was about to start, okay. um, and so when I finished my internship, I'd done a good enough job that Michael assigned me to do a polish of, of an episode, uh, which was later produced called "Playing God," and I think I was like the fourth or fifth writer on it. It was a really troubled script. And I did my polish, uh, and I handed it in, and they basically went, hey, thanks, but, you know, yeah. it didn't really get any traction. Um, and But, you know, I got my first paid writing gig uh, mm-hmm. at age 22, which sure. is fucking amazing. Um, and, uh, and it left me with an open door to go in and pitch anytime I wanted. So I pitched episodes of DS9, and I pitched episodes of Voyager, and never sold anything, but... It it did at least allow me to keep some semblance of a relationship with with the show. Right. Uh, but what I was doing, man, was nothing. I was um, living on credit cards, racking up credit Ouch. card bill. Yeah. Oh man! By the time I got my staff writer gig, uh, which I was twenty eight, so six years on what uh, show? On uh, Dark Angel. Okay. Was my first one. Um, I had fifty grand in credit card debt. Holy shit. Yeah. And and this is like I spent a year-ish doing nothing but like figuring out how to shuffle credit cards. Right. Uh, and then I worked at Blockbuster for a while. Yes. And then I worked at Warner Brothers as a freelance uh, reader doing coverage. Fuck, and man. The, and this then as a PA. And then I got a job as Howard Gordon's assistant. Okay. So even th- through all that, I was still trying to get out of sure. this huge hole. And then it was around 2000 that I started making enough money to, to, uh, to sort of stay afloat. But I had to get out of this $50,000 debt that okay. I had racked up. And I did, you know, because yeah. I, 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 once I got my first staff job, you know, knock, knock wood, wood uh, things, things uh, took off and have been pretty good since. And that was on Dark Angel. That was on Dark Angel. And, and you just got staffed again. Yes. You're on? I'm on The Tick. Yeah. I'm I on the Amazon reboot of The Tick. 
which is amazing. Um, I am working with Ben Edland, who I've known and we've been friends uh, for about 13, 14 years. We wow. worked on Firefly together. Okay. Um, and we actually wrote a script together on, on Firefly. Um, and say something while I take a drink of water. Well, no, I, I mean, the, the, the only thing I can think of right now in, in, on Firefly is the fact that Ross died. Like, I know. It's a really sad story. I mean, we all looked up yesterday, and somebody who, I mean, I was driving over here, and I was like, oh, my God, like, you knew him. Like, what can you say? Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, Ron Glass died uh, last night, and he was... He played Shepherd Book. He played Shepherd Book. He's yeah. also really well-known from his days on Barney Miller. Uh, really underrated actor, really, and just as a guy, like the nicest, sweetest, calmest presence you could ever be around. Great sense of humor, big, big laugh, um, and you know, not what you would think. Like you think of your stereotypical actor with big ego or big, you know, issues about camera time or whatever. Were there some on that show? Because we all look at Firefly. There were really and we're not. Like, yeah, you know, we look at the, Firefly and we're like, how come that thing went away? Like, no, that, that cast really is an ensemble yeah. was, was pretty fucking amazing. Um, and, and it was really a family. And I think everybody kind of looked up to Ron as the dad of the family because he had had such a career up to that point mm -hmm. that these younger actors could look at and go, wow, this guy, this guy was an icon and now he's here playing in our sandbox. Um, but just the, the sweetest, nicest uh, guy. I just tweeted something. Uh, I cracked him up one time, uh, and I like he, like really got a good belly laugh out of him, and that made me happy for about a month. <laughs> I was like, I'm good. I'm. I, I made Ron laugh. That's awesome. That's that's all I need out of this gig. Yeah, long-standing TV legend made him laugh. Yeah, He's feeling pretty good. Uh, and, and I mean, was that one of your favorite gigs? Was working with on Firefly? Like, how much did Joss Whedon uh, like rub off on you, or did he was he was he always was he a, a hero of yours going in, or did you admire him or know him going in? He then, was a dick. Yeah, Who I mean, gives a awesome. shit about we, we that guy. Of, I mean, we've, we've interviewed him in short bursts here on Geekscape, and I've never liked the guy. No, no, <laughs> he's short and fat, and no, he's he's the. Probably the best writer I ever worked with. I, you know, I was an assistant on. Uh, I was Howard Gordon's assistant, and Howard worked on both Buffy and Angel. Sure. And I always felt kind of like the the guy on the outside looking in, going, "Please, I want to play. Right. Can I go into the candy store?" Um, and I I could and still can quote chapter and verse of Buffy and Angel. And on the tick, I'm working with David Fury, so that's kind of funny. That that's cool. Every once in a while, I'll be like, no, 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 you guys didn't do that on that episode. You did this. And Fury's like, shut up. <laughs> You're a psychopathic nerd. Stop it. Yeah. Um, but, but so, yeah, so I was a humongous uh, Joss fan. And, uh, and so getting on, on Firefly was a ridiculous honor uh, and kind of nerve-wracking because, you mm -hmm. know, now it's like, all right. He's going to be looking Here, right at you. Here's the bat. Step up to the plate, right. kid, and, uh, and let's see if you can hit it. And, you know, thankfully I did. Uh, my first script was uh, one of the easiest scripts that we had that season. It, it sailed without really, you know, we, it, we had to break it kind of quickly. Uh -huh. And it was kind of madness getting it off the board. But once uh, I, I was sent off the outline, which Ben Edlin helped me write the outline, 
uh, outline and script, everything went super smoothly, and we got it in, and and uh, and it turned out great. Um, but anyway, uh, that was how I met Ben, mm-hmm. uh, who is my boss now on the Tick, and it's the first time that I've really had an experience where the person that I'm working for has been a friend, right? Purely a friend. That's what you're going through right now. Right? Yeah. Yeah, because we worked together, but, you know, he was producer level and I was executive story editor, so we were colleagues sure. for a minute. Um, but uh, more than anything in the years in between that job and this job, I've gone to see his band, he's come to my house for birthdays, we've been buddies. Um, and now buddies turns into he's, he's the boss, which creates a, an interesting dynamic where there's times that I want to go like, hey, asshole, that's really dumb. And I can't yeah, you have say to, that. You have to respect some level of a... Um, and, uh, and by the way, A, he's not an asshole and he does not say dumb things. I'm really just talking about the, 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 uh, the alteration in dialogue between a friend relationship yeah, and could, a boss relationship. You can make it a little more casual than is appropriate in a work right. environment. Because then other people start being like, oh, I guess I can talk to him more. And right. then the whole right. ship starts to mutiny right. before you know it. Because you don't know what other relationships are actually not as good as yours and his. Exactly. Or, or fr- Yeah, you, you can't even start down that road. Yeah. Uh, for fans of you know the earlier iteration of the take, how, I mean, do you guys constantly, do you, do you just have to like kind of leave that where it was? Uh, and do your own thing, or is there are there references to the old tick? Are there, you know, it, I mean, because everybody loved the old. Yeah, uh, tick. yeah, and, and I mean, this is it's a it's a continuation of the character that is the tick. It's from a, the Patrick Warburton version. It's a it's a new well, and from the cartoon and right. from the comic before that, because uh, we are on the one, two, three, fourth version, I guess, of the tick. Um, and it's an it's a totally new version, but it definitely owes its uh, its roots to uh, you know the comic that Ben started when he was seventeen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's things that you'll see and you'll recognize in terms of uh, the the definitely the Tick and Arthur suits. There there's a scene in the pilot which you guys may have already seen on Amazon, where Tick is going around Arthur's apartment yanking on lamps and trying to find the the opening to the secret passageway that leads to the hidden lair uh so there's nods to the to the other versions of the show but this one is different in that we're trying to do we're trying to make a little bit more of a comment on the proliferation of superhero entertainment in the world right now sure by using the world of the tick as ridiculous and over the top as it is uh, as an access point to how people see uh, superheroes, uh, so th- that's a that's an odd way of saying we have a world in which superheroes exist, like the MCU, like the DCCU, like um, powers. Take your pick. Sure. Um, but our super and the fun comes from our superheroes being tick-like. You know, they're kind of absurd. Yeah. They're uh, just to the left of. Yeah, what these other superhero you know, universes have to offer. Yeah, where where superheroes uh, in the regular universes tend to want to be cool and slick and woo, and they speak like this in a stage whisper. Our guys don't do that, um, so that's where the fun comes from. But so you plant these kooky superheroes and supervillains in the world, and then what we're trying to do, which is uh, a delicate balancing act, 
is trying to make the world around them as grounded and real as possible. You know, how would people react to living in a world where there are superheroes, but a superhero's power is, you know, to take uh, a, a chapter from the cartoon, is that he's got a chair for a head. Sure. Um, what would be an honest human reaction to that? And what would be an honest human reaction, for instance, to Arthur, who is a regular guy uh, and is now best friends with this crazy superhero guy who is super strong and nigh invulnerable? What would, how is, would his family react to all of a sudden Arthur deciding, I'm going to be a psychic to right. a superhero? Well, you're going to put yourself in danger. You're going to get yourself killed. It's a world in which death is real, you know. It's not like the cartoon where people get shot, blown up, or whatever, and they just move on. Death is real in this universe. So we're, we're trying to thread that needle to make sure that we're as funny and kooky and over-the-top and outlandish as the show has ever been while trying to keep a serialized story with real human emotion and real through lines for the characters and genuine arcs for them. Um, while we honor the take that has come before. Well, and how many episodes did you guys get beyond the, this pilot that you guys can watch right now on Amazon? We're doing 12, um, and so the way Amazon will release them is they'll release a, release a batch of six uh-huh. next August, and then another batch of six next October. Okay. So we'll do six episodes, and we have, you know, we're working on the, the story for the whole season. We've got the big temples. And so there'll be a nice big cliffhanger at the end of episode six. That These are will, full hour episodes or this? Half hour. Half hour. Yeah. Half hour. Um, and uh, so we're structuring with uh, kind of that classic mid-season finale that shows do these days. So we'll, the first six will have a, a little arc of its own, end in a big blowout, big cliffhanger, and then in two months you can come back and watch the rest of the season for right from where we left off. And those 12 are guaranteed. Yes. Or not, not just six guaranteed, but all 12 are guaranteed. 12 are guaranteed. Yeah, we're working on them all at the same time. And if people like it, there's seasons. Yeah. Right? I, I mean, we all know the, 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 the Netflix stuff. Yep. And we're, you know, Hulu, I guess, was coming up as well, and everybody's familiar with them. But uh, Amazon, I just started watching stuff on Amazon, and uh, it's all, these, all these, these platforms are really pretty interesting I mean, because we become so impatient. That this binge watching way of reading it is almost spoiled my monthly comic book reading. Even yeah. like uh, my mentality to have to wait every month to read a new comic book in a twenty-two page series is starting to not be enough for me. Yeah, you know? and and you know it affects the way you write it too because mm-hmm. you no longer have to to con- to construct your story in the way of broadcast and so. Okay. So you don't need 22 minute pages. Or like how many page, how long is a script? Well, a script could it varies because right. you can your running time can be 26 7 8 minutes or you can run long. Wow. And on network, fuck that. You no, have to be exactly on and you have to and you have act breaks that you have to adhere to. And that's really what what I was going to that's the biggest difference that I found uh, you know, an hour long show uh, on broadcast or basic cable has six acts, sure. and uh, sometimes a teaser and six acts, and you've got a big act break, and that's a little bit of a cliffhanger to get you to come back um, after the commercial break. You know, I've been watching a lot of cable, Netflix, Amazon, uh, HBO shows, um, and I find that I get really bored a lot watching some of these shows. 
And I think it's because they don't have that that act break structure. Mm-hmm. So the story um, has plot a completely different, completely different flow. Um, and I know that people would say, well, TV is artificial, broadcast is artificial, there's no act breaks in real yeah. life. Yeah, but you're not watching real life. You're watching entertainment. You're used to, to, to having things happen at a certain pace with a certain built-in expectation of uh, rising action to climax to then come back down, resolve, rise, climax. Rhett lather, rinse, repeat. And, and do it at a pace that is aggressive. And you're right. Some of these shows, you know, even the superhero shows that we all like. Right. Uh, sometimes there are episodes where you're like, you know what? I, I think this could have been a 10-episode series right. instead of a 13-episode series. And, and you're still, and you're talking about short orders, too. Right. You know, you're, it's not like uh, you're watching, um, take your pick, Flash, The Flash, sure. which has 22 episodes. These are shows that have 13 episodes, sometimes 10 episodes, and you're going, hmm, that was, that was a boring episode. They didn't right. need to do that. So I think there's something that uh, writers and producers of digital entertainment need to look at um, in terms of trying to keep things alive and crackling. Maintain and, that level of discipline where you say, hey, listen, we, we still got to entertain people here at right. this point. We can't go totally into the pathos because we can. Right. We have to keep some things popping. Things get a little indie movie uh, oftentimes. <laughs> You're right. Um, and uh, that's, I was going to say that's no knock on indie movies. But yeah, it's no, the, a knock on indie there movies. There have been some good indie movies. I, I got a chance to watch several indie movies on the plane. Um, but, and I liked them all for their different uh, appeal. I talked on the last episode about Arrival and... and um, talked a little bit about uh, Fantastic Beasts. I think Fantastic Beasts had some serious lulls in it. Um, I wish it hadn't, but it, d- it did feel like, hey, we're going to have the excuse that, that this is a juggernaut and there will be more movies right. later on. So right. this, can, uh, this can stretch some setup uh, for a while. And, and I don't know if I enjoyed that. Some of the, I don't know. I, th- I, I like the idea that we have different flavors now, like the MCU on, on uh, Netflix. I love the idea that we have different flavors, that we can have a, a Luke Cage that is... You know, uh, has an injection of black exploitation. We have so good. we have uh, the Daredevil that has an injection of a bit of uh, the wire, something a little bit more uh, gritty than with uh, crazy kung fu ninjas. Sure, and and I like the fact that there are these different flavors, and I like that about indie movies because obviously, if you're going to go see Civil War, you're basically seeing another Avengers movie, or so you're basically seeing another Captain America movie. I think right. Doctor Strange had a little bit more flavor to it. Yeah, but it is keeping in the structure that was established, tried and true, through Iron Man one. Thor 1, where you have this guy who's kind of humbled early on, right. and you know he's the cocky guy, I remember Thor swinging his hammer as yep. he walks into the throne room, you have this guy who has to be humbled and, uh, and fix things again. Um, I really enjoyed Doctor Strange. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. But it is the same formula. Very, uh, oh yeah, and a lot of these uh, MCU origin stories sort of have that same thing. I would say Cap is the only one that's different. Cap's journey is is not Tony's or Thor's right. or, um, and that's why I actually wish they had done uh, a Hulk story with uh, Ruffalo, even right. though the I lawyer. think I think they were kind of sick of of doing it because they did one with uh, uh, Eric Bana and they did one with uh, uh, Edward Norton. Well, I think some of that's the Universal rights. Yeah, because 
Disney can't distribute those domestically. Right. And right. Why, so the, I, I kind of want. Why would Disney pay for that movie if they cannot take the domestic? I, I kind of want a solo. I'm not. I don't kind of. I want a Ruffalo Hulk movie. I do too. Because um, I think he's amazing as Banner, and I, Hulk is one of my favorites. But they've done it twice, so I understand why they're not doing it. But anyway, that just yes, Strange was uh, a relatively uh, down the middle origin story of an arrogant guy gets humbled, has to learn, essentially, literally to to. to use his hands again to walk again um, but it was funnier than mm-hmm. normal and I, I like that it was um, weirder than normal which I think it may be yeah. just as valuable because we've always we've, we have had a lot of sense of humor in the Marvel Universe but I think that it's the fact that it was weird I just always wanted these movies to be weirder than they are and right. I think Guardians was really weird I think Ant-Man was really funnier right. uh, and uh, this one was definitely weird and I enjoyed that and I thought visually it was the most fun I'd had watching a Marvel movie. Yeah. Just because of what Scott Derrickson and those guys did with just the interdimensionality of everything yeah. and seeing it all. Yeah, yeah. I thought it, was, it looked spectacular. Yeah, and I thought uh, Cumberbatch, I thought the whole cast was great, but I, I've heard a bunch of people bitch about Cumberbatch's accent. I Why? thought he was fine. I I'm thought a dumb his American. I don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a dumb American. I have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, so I, I thought it was awesome. That I really it, enjoyed it. The Thor Ragnarok director made my favorite movie so far this year you know A Hunt for the Wilder People which oh, I haven't seen I, that it's awesome and it is an indie movie and the fact that Marvel is going after some of these directors who yeah. come out of these different flavors in the indie world and I think it's something that uh, that we've seen obviously in things like Jurassic World and we're seeing the Star Wars movies these right. indie directors getting their you know I mean, as a filmmaker myself, I'm only one film away from a Star Wars film. <laughs> so say we all. Yeah, I just have to go out and make my $1 million movie that we brought, you know, project up against the side hey, of the bar. Maybe you and just I did. Go do a Star Wars movie. You may have just done that. Uh, and here we go with the Star Wars movie. Um, I can't wait to see what he does with Thor, two, Thor 3 because I thought Hunt for the Wilder People had such a great mix of tone right. and, uh, and really rich character stuff. I think right. Sean. Right. Uh, Sam Neill is awesome in it. The little boy is that is awesome on? Uh, is that still in theaters or is that? No, I, it was in theaters stream? back in May or June, and I think now you would you'd have to just watch it on VOD or maybe it's on Netflix. But I thought it was awesome. I'll happily pay for it. I like my number one movie. Of the year. I like uh, his previous movie that he did with. Uh, uh, oh, what we do in shadows? Yeah, it's <laughs> awesome. Uh, what's his name? The Jermaine Cloud Declan. of the Concords. Yeah, yeah. Jermaine. Yeah. I love that stuff. Uh, and I do like that Hollywood is going to different people with different accents and different backgrounds to do this. Uh, uh, we are stronger the more diverse we are, I believe. And No. No. I, I, I can't say that. I, I return <laughs> to the U.S. and I can't say that kind of stuff anymore. It's been no. outlawed. No. It's got to be all we white. Are, we're all white. My name is not Jose. My name is Joe. I did call my mom and I was like, hey, mom, listen, I'm going to be a lot whiter for the next four years. Uh, I'm really going to be laying heavily on the London thing. But not so much that I get deported back to Britain, and uh, I'm probably not going to speak Spanish for the next four years. Not, sure uh, okay on Kevin and Bean, they their producer is uh, uh, Dave, the King of Mexico, <laughs> and he has now uh, become Dave Johnson, the King of Canada. That's funny. That's the, the running gag. So yeah, I'm going to be uh, Joe Miller from here on out. <laughs> yeah, not Jose Molina. That's going to help you get hired on some of these things. You know? Well, it's going to keep me from getting uh, deported, deported, or beheaded, beheaded, Put or hunted, burnt. Uh, alive. You don't want to experience the first. You're not kind of looking forward to the first purge a little bit. The the most dangerous game. Yeah, being hunted. Yeah, you're not looking. No, forward dude, to I'm it. fat. If I'm hunted, I'm I'm mm-hmm. out within the first hundred yards. 
Okay. Well, yeah. Well, no. you, got, you might have time. You until January. The, I, think, I think the more diverse, the better, <laughs> is, is what we're saying. <laughs> uh, the, so one thing that I did, I looked up, and, uh, and I forget how I read it. I, I know I read it in single issues, but I was reading Amazing Spider-Man, which I think Dan Slott is killing it on, on Spider-Man. Yeah. I remember early on when Dan Slott started writing Spider-Man, they were also doing like Mark Wade stories, and they were doing a couple different writers. Yeah. And Dan Slott slowly... You know, separated himself from the pack and became the amazing Spider-Man writer, and he got a ton of crap for it. I just remember him on Twitter just responding to how much crap he did because he was doing some major moves with Spider-Man. He right. was bringing some characters back. He was making some major changes in Peter Parker's life. He was doing a lot of stuff that I think Peter needed right. in order to not be stuck in that same hole. I'm kind of a post-college guy, and I yeah. have been for thirty years. Thing that Peter Parker's been stuck with. And so I've been reading Amazing Spider-Man, and then when they, uh, somewhere in the renumbering of Spider-Man, you wrote this uh, new Spider-Man story that came in between issues. That right. was like a 1.1, 1.2, 1.3, 1.4, 1. whatever. Yep. And I was reading it, and I didn't know that we'd be friends. I read through almost every issue, and it wasn't until the final issue when I was like, you gave up. And no, I was like, I was like, who read, right? Oh, how was it? I know, I know that name. I know him as his avatar in Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> but but I but I mean, what was that process like? Writing, writing Peter Parker. Dude, How'd that come about? That was amazing. It was one of those things. I was on. Uh, I was about to start season two of Agent Carter, um, and because you wrote season one and two. Yeah, so I was you're on, friends with Brandon Easton, who we've had on the show as well. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I uh, I was on both seasons of Agent Carter, and in between season one and two. Um, I just get uh, an email kind of out of the blue. Um, I had expressed an interest in writing comic books to our Marvel execs during season one, but it was one of those things where people ask you, oh, would you be interested in doing X? It's and like, they, yeah, they I would it. love to direct Star Wars, sure. Yeah, so, so they say that stuff. It's not like one of those things because, you know, when a director hangs out with other directors and you're hanging out with their talent, Right, it's always shied shied upon to be like, hey, well, you know, I'm doing this. You want to come play with me? Right, you know, because it's like, dude, it's their gig. Right, don't steal from it. It's so, but being in the room at Agent Carter and having access to the Marvel people, there wasn't like a bunch of kiss ass involved, right? Cause no, you can see how the, that would be the, like. It, hey, what really, else you got? What else you got in there that I can play with? You know, the, it, Firefly was an awesome experience, but I have to say, Agent Carter is probably the closest I felt to a bunch of people uh, in a work setting ever. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, it really felt like a bunch of people who wanted to come to work every morning just to hang out. And right. we got to make an amazing show to boot. But it was, we would just sit in the room and talk and, uh, and shoot the shit about whatever nerdy nonsense was on our mind. And so conversations would ultimately lead to, you know, uh, this character who I love, this arc in this comic and book. You guys that got I a chance to put Madame Mask in the series. Ultimately. Yeah, in season two, which is crazy because she is a pretty high-profile villain for you know Cap and Iron Man and these characters. Right. You guys got to, to use her first, and or yeah, we an got iteration of her. That was yeah, her. we got we got to put a spin on on who she was and Whitney Frost and uh, uh, and her origin. Uh, I thought I thought that was pretty awesome. But the comic book came about uh, just one of these conversations. We all, basically, in the room were like, uh, yeah, we would all love to write Marvel comic books. Who wouldn't? Um, And we had two Marvel execs who, three Marvel execs who worked with us uh, on a day-to-day basis, 
Eric Carroll, who is now producing the Spider-Man movie, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Megan Bradner Thomas and Wendy Wilming. And so just in talking with these guys, I think I got on the radar of the comic book guys, and they reached out to me in between seasons and were like, hey, would you be interested in writing a comic for us? And I'm like, you're a Marvel, yes. <laughs> um, and uh, so what they were interested in doing was relaunching the Santarians. Mm-hmm. who are a group, a super group of people who were introduced by Joe Quesada in a Daredevil run called, called Daredevil Father about 10 yeah. years earlier. I remember that. Um, and they were, they were pretty cool. I had a couple of issues with how they were written. I thought that there were, there were certain cliches that I wanted to, to go away from. Racial cliches? Yeah. yeah. Uh, a, lot of, um, a lot of the ways Spanish was used, uh, some of the ways... Sexuality was used. I, I, I loved what the characters were in general. I thought I had a different angle on them. But uh, at that point, we were about to start season two, and I was like, guys, I would love to do this, but I don't know if I have the time right now. Can we put a pin in it and revisit it? And then they were like, yeah, well, you know, we'd love to have you. It's a little more time sensitive than that. Uh, and just so you know, we were thinking of introducing them uh, as a special guest in a six-issue run, six run of Spider-Man. And we want you to write those that Spider-Man story. When you story. hear Spider-Man, you're like, uh, It's it. That's it. It's over. Right. Uh, I'll, I'll do whatever I need to do. I won't sleep. I, At the time, did you know what Dan and those guys were doing with the, the post-Secret War? Uh, uh, a little bit. Secret War thing where you now have to have Peter as this industrialist. Yes. And he's kind of like a Tony Stark type character. Yeah. Or at least a peer. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I, they, they briefed me. Once I agreed, and the minute they said Spider-Man, I was yeah. like, yes, yeah. whatever. Uh, whatever I need to do, uh, I'll do it. Uh, give me your blessing to tweak the Santarians in this way, and let's do it. Um, and so once I was in, they sent me uh, the Bible that Dan had written, um, changing the direction of Peter and the Spider-Verse. Uh, after that, and I had the story that kind of has been bouncing around in the back of my head, you know, as For how long? as a Latino, right. as a, somebody who was raised Catholic, there's always these issues of faith that bounce around in there. Um, and this was a great opportunity to take a character who doesn't tend to wrestle with these issues, who doesn't tend to wrestle with... Yeah, Peter's not Matt Murdock. Right. You know? right. And it seems like with Marvel Comics, Matt Murdock only is basically the guy who gets the lion's share of that whole conflict of Catholicism and faith. Right. It goes to Matt Murdock. And, and it's all sort of internal, very internal Catholic, uh, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Soul uh, searching right. with, within, Matt within his moral, comp, his moral map. For Peter, I wanted to do something that was literal and a lot more nascent in his faith because he has no faith, because he's a guy who's uh, uh, essentially a scientist. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just wanted to throw in the notion, as an agnostic myself, of very simple. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy, Horatio. Just that line from Hamlet, which to me is... The reason I consider myself an agnostic, not an atheist, um, I, I don't know what's there. And I wanted Peter to explore the idea that he doesn't know. That he's always had an assumption that it's all, you know, 
whatever it is that it it's, it that doesn't it's really affect what? what's that that it's a story is but were you making peter an atheist turn towards an agnostic yeah I was making him a guy who hadn't really explored faith at all. Because he had science. Because he had science. Uh, right. And and having him ask some questions and, and basically going by the end of the run, spoiler, I got to open my mind to this. Right. Um, just to open it. Not because I believe one thing or the other, but because I've never explored this before. Yeah, as much as Peter's a scientist, though, after X number of adventures in the Marvel Universe, you'd think that he would have some appreciation. I mean, he's been on super teams with actual gods. Yeah. Uh, and we we talk about right. gods and and Thor and in he, he's um, this will this will show how many issues you read. I read he all has, six. He has a big conversation yeah. with Beast, where Beast basically goes, "We are gods." Mm-hmm. How? But, but it it really is more of a of a sort of a celestial, all powerful, omniscient, omnipotent guiding of a force that guides the universe sort of capital G God in the way of Christian faith did they tell you to steer because of the stuff that Dan Slott's doing now with the clone conspiracy and stuff did they tell you to steer clear of the Uncle Ben stuff or you know no I used Uncle Ben I know um, but, they, 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 but you never had to fight that no you'd be like hey guys they never really mess with Peter's faith if Uncle Ben were somehow they returned. never gave me they never uh, really tweaked the story in any way and there's a couple of instances where i wish i'd i'd known a little bit more because i'm a fan of the character but i don't know the 50 60 years of history of the character and everybody that peter of peter of spider-man oh he's yeah no if you if you meet peter parker is like a fucking giant final destination movie (laughs) if you hang out with peter parker you're probably gonna die you know what I mean? From right. Like, from like Jane DeWolf to Captain Stacy to Gwen Stacy. Like if Peter hangs out with you, you're probably going to die pretty soon. Right. He's just uh, a walking final destination. Character. Yeah. And, and I mean, there, there's definitely like Jane DeWolf and all, and all these guys I, I, I'm familiar with. But there, there are wrinkles that once the comics started coming out, people started coming at me. And like going, what? Like uh, uh, he, he has had a conversation with God. Yeah. And it's like, well, yes, but you're. This isn't what I'm talking about. This isn't the guy that you sit and you have a, a chat with. Isn't the god that I'm alluding to? And in suddenly this you're room. a victim of like 50 years of history. Yeah. In a comic book where people are, have folded over every little nick and cranny. Right, of the and which universe. and which doesn't super apply to the point that I'm trying to make anyway, um, which isn't, you know, th- that conversation that he had with that god character wasn't really about um, who controls our lives, who controls fate. Is there a force that's greater than everything and everyone? Um, and is that worth even considering? Um, <clears throat> so it was really, it was a pretty simple story, a pretty simple journey that to me was interesting because I hadn't seen him do it. Right. Um, and that because the Centarians are who and what they are, they are born out of the religion, the Santeria religion. So they are literally creatures spawned of faith, whose powers are faith-based. So it seemed like a pretty natural blending of the two. Of the two. Was Simon, Simon Bianchi, was he supposed to draw all of it? He was. That was always the, the deal. Uh, but for a variety of reasons, uh, Simone. Simone. Uh, I was n- oh, never going to get that right. Yeah. <laughs> Ever. S- Simone was, uh, he, he needed um, a, a guy to come in and uh, pinch it. 
mm-hmm. a couple of times. So you'll, if you look at some of the comic books, especially, I think starting around issue number three, um, you start seeing some variations in the art, and you start noticing uh, the you 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 can really clearly see what is Simone and what is. Uh, the other. Did the you other know that artists. was coming, or were you able to no. write to it? Because no. I, like, if something like that happens, you can always write to it and be like, "Okay, well, I can handle these aspects of the story where it's a dream state or a vision or a, a action sequence." I didn't. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know it was coming until I, I saw the pages. And again, because of time constraints, there were a lot of times when I got the pages uh, and I wanted to make some some adjustments to to except to do exactly what you're talking yeah. about. To, to address that there was a change in the look of of the comic, uh, and it was too late. Right. Uh, so if I have one complaint about how it all uh, shook out, is that I didn't have time to to really work with the artist and make sure that we were as cohesive um, in every issue as we could have been. I met my artist from Miami Vice in Brazil. That was one cool thing about being in Brazil. One day on set, I. Um, was posting pictures and stuff like that, and my artist from Miami Vice uh, reached out to me. I was like, "Hey, I actually work in the town you guys are shooting." And he dropped by set, my buddy Jeans, and he dropped by set and hung out with us. And he got that's to meet awesome. The actors in the movie, who I guess were big Brazilian stars that I didn't know were big Brazilian. You know, when you come from the U.S., uh, you you understand that there are big Brazilian stars, right? You sure? I believe you guys that they are big Brazilian stars and. You look at the Instagrams, you look at the Twitters and this and that, and you're like, okay, they've got major followings. Right. All right. Um, I'm in the U.S., and they're making a movie in Brazil. I don't know how much control I have over all this stuff, but you show up, and you just hope that they're nice, and they can do the, the job. And then you start, you know, I'm walking down the middle of the street in Sao Paulo, and I see their faces on magazines, or I start, or you start to have things leaked from set into the tabloids and that they're writing up, and oh, people, wow. people actually care enough to write up about these actors. And when Jeans came to set, he was a big fan of um, this actor, Jackson Antunes, who I, the second I saw him, I was like, dude, you are the Brazilian Charles Bronson, because he looked like him. <laughs> and he and I got along, even though we had to talk a little bit through a translator, like, he and I got along really well, because right. he's, he's this older, Cheyenne fat-aged, like, Charles Bronson dude, and, and I, the second I saw him act, I was like, we're coming back and we're making that action movie. Yeah. I'm going to make a fucking action movie <laughs> with you, dude. You know, like, I'm not going with anybody younger. I'm going with you. Right. And you're just going to put bullets in people. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and Jeans came to set and was like, dude, you're making a movie with this guy? And I was like, I didn't know who he was. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah. He's cool. Uh, he's super nice. And he's like, yeah, but he's also been, like, on TV for the last 30 years. That's awesome. Yeah, so I don't know. How, how much have you talked about the movie on this podcast? Not much. I was, I've been waiting for the director to come back to the States on the 12th uh, so we can do a, a quick Geekscape about the movie. And then can you give us just a, a, a glimpse it's, of what it's, it's about? Not, it's not Geekscape material at all. It's literally like uh, my friend Guy's family is uh, really integrated with the country music world in Brazil, which is major. It's as popular in Brazil as it is here. Right. You know, because country music is huge here. Sure. And uh, his uncles are country music legends and they have access to all these uh, these country musicians and Guy is a huge country music fan. Like, Guy's, when Guy goes to, Guy was one of my film students and when he goes to, uh, to places like Vegas to see Garth Brooks, Garth Brooks was like, hey Guy, how you doing? Like, oh, playing wow. to him from stage and I'm like, how the fuck did you have that happen? And he's like, 
he's friends with my uncle. <laughs> and so uh, Guy came to me with an outline that he'd written uh, with somebody else. And he's like, this is a movie I want to make. And it's about country music. And I think Brazil, the country of Brazil will give us money to make it. Uh, and the outline just wasn't in a place where it was going to turn into a script that I think hit the... Uh, the gold that well, it didn't it didn't it didn't effectively tell the story he wanted to tell. So he and I rewrote the outline, and then we took times bat batting back and forth and writing the script. And then as he started getting really into pre-production, I had to just start writing. Re I just rewriting the script, and uh, and ultimately he did the last draft of the script to for like you know there's cultural changes he had to make. Sure. You know like uh, like a, like like baseball references aren't gonna fly. In Brazil, you know what I mean, and like, there's some things that just weren't going to fly culturally. So, the movie's in Portuguese. It's a Brazilian movie. Right. We will see about American it, country music. About Brazilian country Brazilian music. country music. Okay. So everybody in the movie, you know, these people would come to set to film their cameos and their, you know, because there's a lot of music in the movie, a lot of live music in the movie, and people would come to set to film their stuff, and everyone would want to take photos with them, and and I would have no idea who they were. Right. And then I would look them up and be like, holy shit, they are the coolest like they're huge and obviously their music was really good because we watched takes of their music and their music was phenomenal but i didn't know that they were mega stars um there was one group that played with you know they had a stand-up bass they had they were a full string um uh band and they were really good and between while we were doing setups they would just kind of their way of relaxing was they would just do super nintendo and nintendo covers <laughs> like in, in this guy, you could literally go to this fiddle player who was in this band. This this guy who was a fiddle player, and, and he was, I guess, the the main writer. He was one of the main writers in the in the group. And I'd go up to him and be like, "Hey, man, I want that song from Mario Galaxy 2. And he'd just be like, "Oh, this one." That's awesome. And he'd just be playing everything on a fiddle, and he would be doing it by memory. Like he would never. He'd never played the song from Castlevania Two, right? Or the theme from Rygar. He'd never pl played it, but he knew. But the fiddle and it. the fiddle is like another language to him. Like it just just second just like, nature. And so he, he he I mean he rarely had to correct himself. He would just naturally just start playing these old Nintendo songs right. on the fiddle, and I mean he hit some pretty deep cuts. Like if you say Legend of Zelda, he wasn't just doing Legend of Zelda. He'd be doing the Wind Waker theme, or he'd be doing like the the, the little Kukuriko Village theme. He'd do the, all these right. different themes, but from different iterations of the series. And the guy was a fucking Nintendo savant. <laughs> it was awesome. Um, you should have put some of that in the movie, just like as an East, a little just Easter enough egg. Get, just enough to get sued. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> just enough to get sued. To have to pay a shitload of money uh, for that. No, the I don't movies. know. I think the, I think the movie, the, the music's going to be great. It's hard to tell if the takes, as a director, it's hard to tell if the takes... Um, I can tell when the takes are, are over the top mm -hmm. because that's just excessiveness, right? You can always tell when the takes are excessive or if there are mannerisms that seem unnatural because I knew what the scenes were once it was translated to Portuguese. I would lost some semblance of knowing whether or not the performance was accurate. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. It's like... I always tell my, my, you know, anybody in film or my students, like, if you mute a television during a bad soap opera, you can't really tell the actors are all that bad. Right. But if you, because honesty is with your ears, and if you are watching a bad take and you hear just the flat 
unnatural delivery, right. then you're like, okay, it's well, it's nuance. A good work. performance is in the nuance. It, it is in the nuances in, in knowing that your movie is being filmed in a different language. I have no idea. And, and now they're talking about me going back and like literally writing an action movie. I would want to put an American star in it mm-hmm. to go into to bring to Brazil to do like a fucking. You don't want your Charles Bronson dude. I do, but I want him to team up with an American actor. I want to, you know, I, like I don't want to make like do like a rush hour in Portugal. Well, I don't want to do like a Brazilian, Brazilian version of like uh, what was the movie with like Wesley Snipes that based on the Crichton book, uh, Red Sun. Oh where yeah, they go to Japan, <laughs> some girl some girl gets choked to death. Yeah, you know. But I was like, okay, well, you could do a, a fish out of waterish type thing and. You could have this Charles Bronson guy show him the ropes, and by the end of it, they're both fucking on the run from a bunch of people who want to put bullets in them. Right. Because action movies sell there really well. Right, right, and right. And so they're convinced I could put the money together. They could put the money together to do an action movie. It's just, you know what? I've got two or three movies that I'm meeting about now on my scripts, and I don't know if I want to put everything on hold to go potentially make a movie. First where world I, where problems, I, my friend. Where I'm directing a, a, a crew in a different <laughs> through translators. You right. Know what I mean, it just seemed. Inefficient. Hey, you could just learn Portuguese. I tried. <laughs> it's um, really weird because it's so like we it's a lot we like speak Spanish, sp- but we both speak Spanish, and right. I feel like Italian is is closer to Spanish than to Portuguese. Spanish than Portuguese. Yeah, I think there's a lot of French influence in Portuguese. I think there's a lot of stuff that starts steering it away from Spanish. I found myself listening to the music, knowing some of the stuff that they were saying. Right. Uh, it was Portuguese was way easier to read than it was to listen to. Sure. So, I don't know, man. I don't know about learning Portuguese. I, you know, I, my thumbs were falling off with the Google Translate. <laughs> I got to the point where I could type in Google, on my iPhone fast and I could speak into my Google Translate and right. wait for the stupid response. So I just, I don't know, man. I don't know. Geekscape is, trust me, when the movie comes out, you guys will hear about it. Whether or not you guys are interested in it because it doesn't have monsters or zombies or aliens in it, I don't know. I can't predict that. But so let's, that's why we, we have guests like Jose on. Do we, do we have any more uh, zombies? I have another candy. I have yeah, to crinkle up. You have to crinkle up and let them know that you're consuming candy. Um, uh, what else What else do we want to talk about? Well, let's talk about your podcast, and then I think that's it. Like You've been doing a podcast for how long with Javi? Uh, we've been doing it now for uh, about three years. Um, okay. And it's about screenwriting or writing in general? It's about television writing specifically. Right. Um, and it's, weirdly, it's not very much about writing itself. Like, we don't really give uh, many writing pointers. Like like script notes. You listen to script notes sometimes with John August yeah. and Mason. Yeah. Right. Uh, so we're not so much about the art of writing because we feel like there's a lot of books and podcasts out there that you can that you can uh, listen to or read that will give you a million pointers. What we wanted to do was to show you the ropes of what it's like to work in the television industry. But it's not just you guys bragging about your lives, is it? It is mostly. <laughs> it is, uh, and it's you know from the very beginning, from how we got our first gig, right. how we worked the assistant trenches, and translated that somehow into uh, a, a gig to how to work that first gig, what your job is as a staff writer, what happens when you are assigned to do your first script, rewrites of your first script, then you get promoted, then you're a story editor, then you're a producer, then you're, wh- how is life in the mid-level? What's, what are your responsibilities now that you ha- you've got a couple of years under your belt? Then you get to the higher levels. Now you're a boss. What are your responsibilities now? What does your showrunner expect of you? It changes 
from level to level. Now you're the guy who's writing a pilot. You're the guy who's running the show. You're the boss or you're the number two. What does that look like? You know, between us, we've been doing this for over 40 years. So we've got a, a lot to, to call from. Yeah. And so guests? that you ever have guests that you work with? Yeah, we do. The first season, Damn it was almost, it was almost, do it. Peppermint Hershey's Kiss. I love them. It's almost Christmas. Yeah. Um, we we only had a couple um, at the beginning because we wanted it to really be about that journey from your first gig to now you're the showrunner. Um, so we did uh, 13 episodes, and I don't I think we had two guests in that first season, and then since then we've had more and more guests. And actually, the last batch of episodes that we've done. I think the last three or four, we've focused more and more on guests because we feel like we've covered a lot of the bases that we want to cover uh, in terms of things that we can share from our careers and our experiences. And now we want to bring in people who do jobs that connect to ours, but that we don't know uh, about uh, everything about. So we've had uh, an agent uh, come in and talk to us. Uh, so it's an industry educational podcast. Correct. Correct. And From the, the viewpoint of two writers. Correct. Um, and, What's uh, it called? Let's talk about it's, it. It's called The Children of Tendu. What the fuck does that mean? The Children of Tendu. Come on. Like, what are you guys doing? Uh, well, all, Javi likes to say that all the good names were taken. Um, and that's kind <laughs> so of true. Went, so the pendulum swung to the exact opposite direction? What well, is here, here's the thing. Like, I'm a big... You weird nerd. Stop I'm, it. I'm a big fan uh, of the Craig Ferguson sure. show, late, the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson. So the goofier and dumber we could be, sure. uh, and the more th- things I could do, like fuck with the sound or do things that make us different from every other podcast, I was like that. Different or unlistenable? That. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah, but that's optional. <laughs> it's, it's an aesthetic. Um, So Children of Tendu, uh, we first wanted uh, Cinema 4 because there's the movie theater that we both grew up going to in Puerto Rico. Uh, it was called Cinema Cuatro, and it was yeah. you know where we saw Star Wars and all that shit. And that was taken? That was taken. Cinema 4 was taken? It was. And you didn't want to just call it Cinema Cuatro? No, because <laughs> we're self-hating Latinos, so we yeah. didn't want to go there. You would have your podcast reported now. So we had, <laughs> exactly, we, we'd had this running joke for a long time. Uh, there's a song called Counting Blue Cars by Dishwalla. That is, uh, the name may not ring a bell, but it's the song no, that goes, tell me all band. your thoughts on God, because I'm on my way to see her. Uh, yeah. That song. And there's sing a line it. in there. Tell me all your thoughts on God. You sing it. See, that's why I did really well. <laughs> um, so there's a line in there. That's my uh, phone falling to the fine. ground. That's fine. Um, that uh, says, it goes, we ask many questions like children often do. I'm a nerd. I am obsessed with Star Trek. Hmm. In my head, it wasn't ask often many questions do. like children often do. It was ask many questions like children of Tendu. Who the fuck are the children of Tendu? Why do they have all these questions? And this is literally how I heard the lyrics for a while. And at one point, I'm talking to Javi on the phone. And I'm like, you know this song? You're a big Trek nerd just like me. Who are the children of Tendu? Am I missing something? <laughs> And the minute I said it out loud, I was like, oh, I'm an idiot. Now that I've said it, I know it's children of Tendu. Yeah. Uh, 
But Wait, so you that, literally thought that that was what the lyric was? I literally was. thought that's what it was. In the age of the internet, you didn't just go and answer that question? This is pre-Google. Sure, but like, maybe there were liner notes. Hey, man. How big of a Dishwalla fan were you? Uh, not okay. big enough, apparently. Not big enough to have the CD. Um, but uh, that was the birth of the children of Tendu name. And, uh, <laughs> and it, it always starts with that story. It's like, Jose is a dumbass who can't hear lyrics uh, properly and uh, yeah and so it's a thing and ever since we've learned that Tendu is actually a ballet move mm-hmm. um, is French for yeah. something there's also a brand of wine called Tendu oh it's everywhere now it's everywhere now it's all us I think and people may get to, you guys may have a bunch of people being like hey listen I am a fan of um, ballet and I found your podcast <laughs> I'm a big wine connoisseur and I found your podcast I, and I like all the TV talk but can you guys, talk about ballet a little bit more can you more? guys get back into this a little because you're really we've listened to 40 <laughs> hours now not one thing about plies man not about the nutcracker for fuck's sakes well listen guys in August you can partake in our good friend Jose Molina in his stories on the tick, which is gonna be on on Amazon. I'm pretty excited about it. And of course, uh, are they collecting your amazing grace run? Are they doing It is. Uh, the trade paperback is out now. You can get it on Amazon or wherever comic books are sold. That's what you're looking for. Spider Man Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. And um, you I can see him once a month here at his table while we play um, D and D. We're playing next week, right? I'm going to San Francisco to run Sunday. A mil- oh, Sunday? Yeah, we can play Sunday. Sunday. I can play Sunday. All right. Okay, I can play if Sunday. We can, you can, we can if roll I, you in yeah, in a wheelchair. If, dude, I'm not going to be able to walk. <laughs> but you know what? I did it to myself. All right. But I'm we'll excited. We'll see. Geekscape is you can find us on uh, geekscape.net. Obviously, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, all that stuff. And you can find Jose Molina on all those things. His Twitter is... Jose Molina TV. So click on it. Follow him. And we will see you guys on the next episode. Thank you for listening. Thanks, John.